Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing our series in the book of Numbers. And here, James Jordan is going to be discussing Numbers chapters 21 through 30 in a lecture called Starting Over. We do want to invite you to our upcoming Theopolitan Ministry Conference on July 19th and 20th here in Birmingham, Alabama. Peter Lightheart, Jeffrey Myers, and several of our Theopolis fellows will be delivering lectures, all in the context of liturgical worship. For more information about that conference, there's a link in the show notes. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing the book of Numbers. In this lecture, we will cover Numbers 21 through 30. That may seem a lot of chapters, but a good deal of the material is repetitious, and we won't need to spend a lot of time on it. Chapter 21 is the journey to Moab, and it's worth looking in your notebook at our chart of the third departure. We mentioned at the beginning of this series that there are typological cycles in the book of Numbers that by means of repetition and variation give us new perspectives on things. We saw that we've already been through one cycle and now we're going to go through another one. We have another Passover event, another departure from bondage, another journey with rebellions, another encampment, another golden calf incident all coming up here, again showing the nature of man's sin and God's grace. And if we were to study this in tremendous detail, then we could go into the differences and the variations in these cycles and what they have to communicate to us. But in this overview, we can't take that much detail. But at the end of chapter 20 of Numbers, we saw the death of Aaron. We saw the death of the high priest, like the Passover, makes it possible for people to pass out of bondage into freedom. And just as Israel defeated Egypt. God defeated Egypt for them in Exodus 14, as soon as they came out from Egypt. So here, as soon as Aaron dies, there is a victory over the Canaanites. Then in both stories, we have a passage through or by the Red Sea, and then we have the journey to the new place. In this case, we are going to the plains of Moab. When the people left Egypt, there were three incidents of rebellion along the way. They sang the victory song, and they fought against Amalek. In this occasion, we'll find there's one rebellion incident, which is an improvement and an encouragement. We'll find a song, and we'll find the victory over Sihon and Og, and then we will arrive at the plains of Moab. So that's the theological structure of what's going on in Numbers chapter 21. Now let's look at it in a little bit of detail. First of all, then, the initial victory over Canaanites made possible by the death of the high priest, we're entering into the land, leaving our wilderness city of refuge. When the Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, south country, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, then he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If thou wilt indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord heard the voice of Israel, and delivered up the Canaanites. Then they utterly destroyed them, devoted them to destruction, and their cities, and thus the name of that place was called Hormah. Well, if we look back at Numbers 14.45, we find that they've already fought one battle at this place called Hormah. When God told them that he would not let them go into the land, but that they would wander forty years, then you'll recall 
the people decided they would go up and fight anyway, and they fought the Amalekites and Canaanites, but they were defeated. And it says in verse 45 of chapter 14 that the Amalekites and Canaanites who lived in the hill country came down and struck them and beat them down as far as Hormah. So now if we're going to start back at the place where we lost, we start at Hormah. Now the word Hormah means devoted to destruction. And the idea here is these cities were completely burned up. A comparison with other passages would show that the city was burned to the ground and that the fire that was used to burn the city was the fire taken off of God's altar. It was his fire and his judgment. Other passages that speak of places called Hormah call them whole burnt sacrifices. And from that we can see the idea that if you don't have Christ as your substitute, then you yourself are burned up. This is the first city that's totally burned up. Later on, Jericho will be the second after they make their formal entry into the land. The first city is totally burned up and becomes a Hormah. And we find other such instances in the Bible, in the book of Judges, chapter 1, and then again in chapter 20. I've discussed this in somewhat more detail in my commentary on Judges, a reference to which you have found earlier in your notes. Well, the Hormah, utterly destroyed place with the fire of God, and God's judgment falling upon the Canaanites. This is certainly a good beginning. It's what they should do. However, after creation comes the fall. And just as Israel fell at Mount Sinai with the golden calf, so here, after they've been given this opportunity, they fall into sin, and the symbol of their fall is serpent. We are reminded, of course, of Genesis chapter 3. It says in verses 4 to 9, that they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. So they are impatient, and that was the sin of Adam. The people spoke against God and Moses, why have you brought us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, no water. We loathe this miserable food. So we've got all the kinds of rebellions that we've had before. They hate the food, there isn't any water, and they're impatient. So says the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Here's the idea of fire again. Remember the fire of God is a major theme throughout this whole middle part of Numbers. And here God's fire takes the form of serpents that bite the people and sacrifice them. And the people start to die. So the people come, and this is new, and say we have sinned because we've spoken against the Lord and you. Uh, we haven't seen this before. Before, when the people sinned and rebelled against God, Moses would intercede, but we haven't seen the people themselves confess sin, at least not very much. But here, this new generation repents and asks Moses to intercede. And God said to Moses, Make for yourself a fiery serpent, set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. And Moses made a bronze or copper serpent, set it on a standard, and it came about, that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked at the bronze or copper serpent, he lived. This, of course, is explained in the New Testament as a reference to Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, who is lifted up just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, and so Jesus became a serpent in our stead and took the serpent's punishment. The people have been bitten by serpents. They have the serpent poison in their bloods. They think like serpents. They act like serpents. They behave like Satan, their father. But Jesus takes the punishment that they deserve. He becomes the serpent, the Satan, in their place. He takes the punishment that they deserve. And if they look to feast their eyes upon him, then they will be delivered from the poison of satanic influence. Well, now we find that they have been restored 
and they begin to move out. This again is parallel to the original exodus. After the people rebelled against God, they continued to move from place to place and eventually found their way to Mount Sinai. And we have some curious little details here in verses 10 to 20. They moved out and camped in Obah. They journeyed from Obah and camped in Ayabarim in the wilderness that is opposite Moab to the east. They set out and camped in the Wadi Zered and they journeyed and camped and camped this, that, and the other. Then we have a poem that is hard to translate. It looks like something's been left out. Verses 14 and 15. Waheb and Sufa and the wadis of the Armen and the slope of the wadis that extends to the side of Ar and leans on the border of Moab. Most commentaries feel that two words have been left out, or a few at the beginning. We traveled through Waheb and Sufa and the wadis of the Armen and the slope of the wadis that extends to the side of Ar and so forth. But we don't know for sure something's been left out. Well, he says they continued to beer, B-E-E-R, and beer means well of water. But this is a well, and it says the people dug up a well and sang a song, To the well, spring up a well, sing to it, the well which the leaders sank, which the nobles of the people dug, with the scepter and with their staffs. So here is a song like the song of the Red Sea, only this is the song of the well. And they traveled on. Well, then we have wars. Just as when Israel came out of Egypt, they encountered Amalek on their way to Mount Sinai. So here, as they leave Kadesh on their way to the plains of Moab, they encounter Sihon and Og. These are important, powerful people, and Israel's victory over them was an encouragement as they approached the Promised Land. Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, let me pass through your land. We won't go off the field. We won't drink from your wells. We'll stay on the king's highway. But Sihon wouldn't permit it. And beyond that, Sihon gathered all his people and went out and fought against Israel. And Israel defeated him and took all the cities. And this is how the east side of the Jordan was taken by Israel. And of course, the tribes of Gad, Reuben, and half of Manasseh are going to settle in this territory. We are given here a poem about how Sihon, the king of the Amorites, had taken this land from the Moabites. Verse 26, Heshbon was the city of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab, and had taken all his land out of his hand as far as the Arnon. So this was originally Moabite territory, and now it became Canaanite. And from Canaanite, it became Israelite. But here's an old poem that's inserted in the Bible for reasons that are not entirely clear, but it says, Come to Heshbon, let it be built, so let the city of Sihon be established. For a fire went forth from Heshbon, a flame from the town of Sihon, it devoured Ar of Moab, the dominant heights of the Arnon. Woe to you, O Moab! You are ruined, O people of Chemosh. He has given his sons as fugitives and his daughters into captivity to an Amorite king, Sihon. But we have cast them down. Heshbon is ruined as far as Dibon. Then we have laid waste even to Nopa, which reaches to Medibah. The idea seems to be that Heshbon was established as Sihon's capital and had defeated the Moabites. But now at the end of the poem it says, We have cast them down and Heshbon is ruined. So the Jews have taken over the territory that originally had been captured by the Canaanites. So it says, Thus Israel lived in the land of the Amorites, and Moses sent to spy out Jazer and captured its villages and dispossessed the Amorites who were there. 
Then they turned and went out by the way of Bashan, and Og the king of Bashan went out with all his people for battle. The Lord said to Moses, Don't be afraid of him. I have given him into your hand. And so they killed him and all his people and sons and possessed his land. Then they arrived at the plains of Moab opposite Jericho. And it's here that they will remain until the death of Moses at the end of Deuteronomy. Now at this point, we have an important perspective on all of this given us by the story of Balaam and Balak. Balak was the king of Moab, and he's very upset. The Canaanites had taken some of Moabite territory, as we've just seen. Now the Jews have come in and captured that same territory, and so they're muscling in against the Moabites, and Balak wants something to be done about it. So Balak goes and hires Balaam, Gentile prophet, to curse Israel. And you have in your study guide a chart called the Balaam Oracle and some comments on Balaam and his donkey that probably would be good to look at while we talk about these three chapters. They're long, cover half a dozen pages in the Bible, at least my Bible, and are generally not studied, and we won't have time to go into too much detail either, so we want to get an overview. The story of Balaam is set out over six days. don't seem to be in connection to Genesis 1 that I can tell, but they are paired off. We have an introduction in verses 2 to 6, and then Balaam's first encounter with God on the first two days. Balaam's second and third encounter come on the third and fourth days, and then his blessings of Israel and prophecies against other nations come on days 5 and 6. The introductory remarks are in verses 2 to 6. We find that Moab was in fear, and Moab and the Midianites got together to send word to Balaam and ask him to come and curse the people of Israel. It says in verse 6, I know, says Balak to Balaam, I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. Well, so they come, and they bring this word to Balaam. Balaam tells them that they'll have to spend the night, and he will talk to God during the night. And the Lord asks him during the night who these people are, and Balaam explains the situation, and God says, Don't go with them. You shall not curse these people, for they're blessed. And so Balaam says that he won't do it, and sends the men back. Leaders of Moab went back to Balak. Well, Balak sends them back again with a better offer. Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Let nothing, I beg you, hinder you from coming to me, and I will honor you richly. Balaam answered, Well, I can't do anything contrary to what the Lord tells me to do. If you stay here tonight, I'll ask him again. So that night, God says that he can go along with the men. So he prepares to go. The meaning of these first two events seems to be that God is warning Balaam not to do this. Balaam wants the money, and so he goes back to God, and God says, All right, you can go, but you must only say what I tell you you can say. These passages that we're reading here make Balaam look as if he's loyal to God and the Lord. But elsewhere in the Bible, Balaam is always seen as a wicked and false prophet who was just for hire. And this will become clear over in the book of Numbers. We'll find out that when Balaam was unable to curse Israel verbally, then he came up with a scheme of sending the Midianite and Moabite women into Israel to get Israel to curse itself. 
So he was a wicked man looking for the money, but he was unable to get it the way that Balak initially asked him to. So, Balaam now arises, this is on the third day, verses 21 to 35, Balaam arose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the leaders of Moab. God was angry because he was going, and the angel of the Lord stood in his way as an adversary against him. And we have the story here of Balaam and his donkey. Now, your notes tell you this, but there is a parallel between the donkey and Balaam and between Balaam and Balak. Just as Balaam rides on the back of the donkey and tries to steer the donkey to do what he wants, so Balak the king is riding on the back of Balaam and trying to get Balaam to do what he wants. Just as the Lord blocks the donkey's path so that the donkey cannot go forward, so the Lord blocks the mouth of Balaam so Balaam can't do what Balak wants. Now, each of these things happen three times. The angel appears to the donkey three times, and God blocks Balaam's prophecy three times. God puts words in the mouth of the donkey, which is an unclean beast, but is unable to speak. And God puts words into the mouth of Balaam, who is an unclean prophet, but is unable to speak true things as well. Now, there are parallels between what happens to the donkey and what happens with the prophecies. The first time the donkey turns out of his way into a field when he encounters the angel of the Lord. And the first prophecy that Balaam makes is just a general prophecy of blessing on Israel that turns away from Balak's intention. The second time the donkey sees the angel, he jams Balaam's foot against the wall. And the second prophecy that Balaam makes in connection to Israel talks about how Israel is going to be like a lion that will bring damage to Balak and the other nations. The third time the angel stands before the donkey, the donkey lies down and just doesn't go anywhere. And the third prophecy that Balaam gives talks about lying down. Balaam himself lies down to make the prophecy, and he talks about Israel as a lion crouching down. So there are these parallels in the events one of which prophesies the other. Well, after the donkey has refused to go three times, Balaam is extremely angry. It says in verse 27 of chapter 22, Balaam was angry and struck the donkey with his stick. And we find the same thing later on. Balak, after Balaam's three failures, is angry and they have an altercation. What's important is what the donkey says in verse 30. Am I not your donkey on which you've ridden? all your life to this day, have I ever been accustomed to do so to you? And he said, no. And that's basically a message to Balak. Haven't you used Balaam as your prophet many times in the past? Haven't you said already in verse 6 that he whom you bless is blessed and he whom you curse is cursed? And has Balaam ever failed you before? The answer is no. Well, then you better learn from this. This is a strange and miraculous event and you better leave Israel alone. But, of course, they don't learn from it, and they continue to trouble Israel, and as a result, they are defeated in battle over in chapter 31. Well, that's the meaning of Balaam's encounter with the donkey. It's a prophecy of what's going to happen and a warning, a warning that they fail to heed. Well, the angel opens the eyes of Balaam, and he sees the angel of God standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand, and Balaam realizes that God is supposed to be in control of the situation and that God is 
only going to allow him to say what God wants him to say. And so he goes on. Well, we come then to the first blessing of Israel. We don't have time to read all this and go through it in detail, but Balak went out to meet Balaam, gets on to him for not coming sooner. Then they sacrifice a bunch of oxen and sheep and get ready for the prophecy. Uh, they sacrifice seven bulls and seven rams in order to earn some type of favor with God. And then the Lord puts the word in Balaam's mouth, and he makes this prophecy that doesn't say anything bad about Israel, in fact blesses Israel. And that goes down to verse 10. Well, Balak is unhappy. What have you done to me? I told you to curse my enemies, but behold, you've actually blessed them. And Balaam says, I can only say what God puts in my mouth. So they go through it again. Balak sets up more altars, seven altars, and offers seven bulls and seven rams. And the Lord meets with Balaam and tells him what to say. And again, it's a blessing on Israel, only it's a little bit stronger. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. As he said, will he not do it? Has he spoken, and will he not make it good? I received the command to bless. When he is blessed, I can't revoke it. And then he says, there's no omen nor any divination in Jacob. At the proper time it will be said to Jacob and to Israel what God has done. Behold, the people rises like a lioness, and as a lion it lifts itself up. It will not lie down until it devours the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. Now that's more of a threat. This is not just a blessing on Israel, but it implies that Israel will rise up and do something to Moab if Moab isn't careful. And this corresponds to the foot being smashed against the wall. Well, Balak is angry again. Balak isn't angry this time. He's amazed. He's not angry till the third time. He sets up another sacrifice, seven more altars, seven more rams, and Balaam prophesies a third time. And this time, Balaam says that he falls down, sees the visions of the Almighty, and sees that Israel and Jacob are stretched out. They're going to inherit a good land like gardens beside the river, like aloes planted by the Lord. He'll have water in abundance. He'll have children all over the place. And he'll have a king, a king that's greater than Agag, king of the Amalekites. God brought him out of Egypt. He will devour nations who are his adversaries. He will crush their bones in pieces. He crouches and lies down like a lion who dares to rouse him up. Blessed is everyone who blesses Israel, and cursed is everyone who curses Israel. Well, surely Balak should get the point here but he'd better not mess with Israel. But he's angry this time, and he flies out against Balaam, says he struck his hands together, and says to Balaam, I call you to curse my enemies, but behold, you've persisted in blessing them these three times. Therefore, flee to your place. I said I would honor you greatly, but the Lord has held you back from honor. So he's not going to get any money for this, and this is why Balaam comes up with the alternative plan, plan B, that's put into effect in the next chapter. Balaam says, I told you that I will have to prophesy what God puts in my mouth. There's nothing else I can say. And then he gives four prophecies concerning the future. And these four prophecies are rather difficult to interpret, and there are a variety of different interpretations of them, but I'll give you mine. And if you want to study the book of Numbers in detail, then you can consult commentaries and see what some of the other options are. The first prophecy is that there will be a king in Israel. It's in verses 15 to 19. It says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come forth from Jacob. A scepter will arise from Israel. 
and crush the forehead of Moab. Actually, it says corners of Moab, undermining their nation. And tear down all the sons of Seth. Edom will be a possession. Seir, its enemies, will also be a possession. And Israel performs valiantly. One from Jacob will have dominion and shall destroy the remnant from the city. That's a prophecy of David, the coming king. Of course, ultimately of Jesus Christ, the star of David symbolized by the star of Bethlehem. Stars are symbols of power and dominion, and particularly of the kingship to come. Well, in connection with the raising up of kings of Israel would be the destruction of the Amalekites. Their king would be higher than Agag, says verse 7, and so the second prophecy is against Amalek. He looked at Amalek and took up his discourse and said, Amalek was the first of the nations, but his end shall be destruction. Apparently the Amalekites were the very first power to become a nation on the scene of the world, but they are going to be destroyed because of their hatred of God. And of course when Saul became king, Saul was told to wipe out the Amalekites. He didn't do so, and David fought against the Amalekites. Uh, there are several stories of David fighting against them. Actually their full destruction didn't come until the book of Esther. But the placement of the prophecy here in connection with the king receives its initial fulfillment with the reigns of Saul and David. Well, then we seem to be looking farther down the future. It says he looked at the Kenite. That's Hobab and Jethro, who have aligned themselves with Israel. And he says, your dwelling place is enduring, and your nest is set in the cliff. Cain shall surely not be consumed, is a proper reading. Cain meaning the Kenites. Until Asher shall take you captive. Asher is Assyria. In this case, Assyria and Babylonia are united. They were both started by Nimrod. And since the Kenites lived in the south with Judah, they weren't taken into captivity by Assyria, but by Babylon. But he is looking even farther down into the future and saying that the Kenites and the Israelites would be taken captive someday by the Babylonians. And that would be a judgment against all of them, even though their place would be enduring. And then there's a final prophecy, one that in my opinion goes all the way down to the New Testament. Alas, who can live except God has ordained it? But ships shall come from the coast of Kitten, which is over in the Mediterranean, and I think refers to the Romans, and they shall afflict Asher, that is the Assyrian Babylonian empires, and they shall afflict Eber, which is the reference to the Hebrews in Israel, and they also shall come to destruction. And so whether this is looking to Alexander the Great, or later on, I'm not sure, but it seems to me that it's picked up in Daniel with the prophecy about Antiochus Epiphanes and the coming of the Romans, and finds its ultimate fulfillment in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD by the Romans, who had already conquered the territories to the east, the Babylonian and Assyrian or Mesopotamian Empire. And we're really looking all the way down to the New Covenant, why Balaam has this international prophecy here, I think, is to put all of this in an international context. Israel was not raised up for her own sake, but to minister to the nations, and ultimately Israel would give way to the international church. At any rate, there are depths and dimensions to this that transcend our overview. That, however, is an overview of the Balaam prophecy. And now we need to turn to... Balaam's scheme. We find out over in chapter 31 that Balaam 
came up with the scheme to send the Moabite and Midianite women into the Israelite camp to seduce them. Balaam figured that if he couldn't curse Israel, he could get Israel to curse itself. If Israel sinned and made God mad, then God would curse them. And so he persuaded the Moabites to go along with this scheme, and that's exactly what they did in chapter 25. In chapter 25, we have another golden calf incident. If you look back at your chart of the third departure, you'll see that the elements are the same. We have a jealousy situation. We have a Levite who executes judgments. And we have a reward given to the Levites as a result. And we have a plague upon the people. Here's the story. First of all, spiritual harlotry. While Israel remained at Shittim, that is the plains of Moab, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. Now that's just sexual sin, but then it says, For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. This is the same as the golden calf incident. It's idolatry mixed with physical harlotry, and it provokes the jealousy of God. And so the Lord said, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. It's not clear in verse 4 what God wanted. It seems to read the simplest that he wanted the leaders of Israel killed. And Moses went to the leaders and said, You kill the people who are actually guilty. Moses was probably interpreting what the Lord meant the proper way, but there's some debate about it. At any rate, a lot of people began to be put to death for this sin. Well, then there's a man who does something even worse. Up to this point, the men of Israel had been going out to the Midianites and Moabites to commit this sin. But now a man actually brings the women back into the camp. One of the sons of Israel came and brought to his brothers a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it. He arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand, went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through the stomach. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. Those who died by the plague were 24,000. So remember at the Golden Calf incident, it was the Levites who uh, executed judgment against those who had committed spiritual harlotry. And here is Phineas, the grandson of Aaron, who does the same. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. So there's the jealousy theme strongly set out. Therefore, behold, I will make my covenant of peace with him. I give him my covenant of peace, and it will be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. Again, if we think back to the golden calf incident, when the Levites showed themselves the true guardians of God's holiness, God gave them the priesthood, and now in a particular way, Phineas is made priest, and the interpretation has always been that the high priestly line would go through Phineas. There were probably other sons, maybe other grandsons of Aaron who could have taken the post, but it will go through Phineas's line, the actual high priesthood. Well, that's the story, and at the end of the chapter we are told 
that they are to make war on the Midianites. Verses 16 to 18. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Be hostile to the Midianites and strike them, for they have been hostile to you with their tricks, with which they have deceived you in the affair of Peor, in the affair of Cosby, the daughter of the leader of Midian, their sister who was slain on the day of the plague because of Peor. Now the next thing that really happens, that the Israelites do, is in chapter 31. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take full vengeance for the sons of Israel on the Midianites. But between that we have five chapters, chapters 26 through 30, of promises and laws. This again follows the pattern that we've seen before. After the people sin and repent, then the promise is renewed. It happened at Sinai, it happened at Kadesh, and now it happens again here. And we have five chapters that indicate a renewal of the promise and a coming into the land. Chapter 26 is the second census. There's a lot more detail here about the various families, but obviously we're not going to try to summarize all of that. One thing the census does is that at this point, the entire nation had been replaced. The old man had died, and the new man had been born. And we don't read of any more failures and sins after this point. There aren't any more failures and sins on the part of Israel after this point until we get over to the book of Joshua and the sins that were committed at Jericho. But we don't have any more wilderness rebellions or anything else. The new generation is all here and the old generation has been completely taken care of. Once again, these numbers here have astral significance. We discussed that earlier and Barnaween's essay discusses it. That's chapter 26. Chapter 27 has two parts. The first 11 verses have to do with inheritance, particularly the inheritance of daughters. Land, the land that was going to be given to Israel, will go to the sons, but we have a man here, and his case would not be unique. His name is Zelophehad, and he had no sons. He had five daughters, and their names are given. Their names are given every time it comes up. Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Tirzah. And they come and want to know about what will happen to their father's land. They think that they should inherit. And the Lord says, that's right. And a rule is set up so that if a man dies and has no sons, then the inheritance is transferred to his daughter. And she will carry on the family land and the family name. All right. Important thing to notice here is it means that women can inherit, even under the Old Covenant. In the New Covenant, of course, there's much more equality than there was under the Old, because both women and men are baptized now, and there are changes along those lines which we don't need to discuss. But this would have been in contrast to most of the nations of the ancient world, allowing women to inherit property. Then we have a section dealing with succession. God tells Moses, you can go up and look at the land, but you're not going to go into it. And Moses says, we need somebody to take the people into the land because they're sheep without a shepherd. And Joshua is appointed, and Moses lays hands on Joshua in front of Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation. And it becomes clear that Joshua will take up Moses' mantle as leader of the people. Then we come in chapters 28 and 29 to laws concerning worship and the calendar and what these actually do is they say how many bulls and rams and how much flour and all the rest is to be offered on what days of the year it seems to me again 
that the idea here is reiterating the promise to Israel, reiterating to them that God will provide food for them. And one of the points here is that God will provide a great deal of food. It takes a lot of capital. It will take a lot to do all these sacrifices. A great many birds and a great many sheep and a great deal of flour has to be offered. And it presumes that they will be prosperous and that their tithes will be big and that the nation will be able to afford these things. Now, there's not a whole lot of point in talking about this in detail. I have given in your notebook a brief summary or outline of the passage. The only thing that's particularly noteworthy is the curious fact that during the Feast of Tabernacles, you have 13 bulls offered on the first day, and 12 bulls offered on the second day, and 11 bulls on the third day, and 10 bulls on the fourth day, and so forth until you get down to the seventh day, you have seven bulls offered. The total is 70, and the number 70 has to do with the nations of the world. And I believe, particularly on the basis of things said in the books of Haggai and Zechariah, which comment on the Feast of Tabernacles, that these 70 bulls are substitutes for the 70 nations of the world. And this indicates that Israel was to pray for and minister to the other nations of the world. She did not exist for her own sake. And again, there's kind of a picture of world conquest here, spiritual in nature, that Israel's mission would be, as God's army, to carry the truth and the ministry to all the nations of the world. Finally, in this section of restored promises, we have laws about vows. And almost all of chapter 30 has to do with a vow that a woman takes. It says... But if a man makes a vow, then he has to keep it. But what about if a woman makes a vow? Well, it says that her husband can cancel the vow on the day he hears of it. Her father can cancel the vow on the day he hears of it. If the husband doesn't say anything, then the vow stands. If the husband changes his mind, then he has to bear the guilt of it and make a sin offering to take care of it. Why all these laws about a woman's vow? Well, I think it's because Israel is the bride of God. And she has taken a vow at Mount Sinai to be faithful to the covenant. And God has not annulled that vow. And so she's bound to it. And to me that fits here in terms of the theology because Israel is now reconstituted as a nation. They are made a new creation. The promises are renewed to them. They have taken a vow to serve God. And they are reminded of it here in this passage that talks about the vows that a woman takes. We could go through and probably spiritualize on each one of these situations of the husband canceling the vow, the husband making the vow sustain. But in general, God is going to hold the people to the vows that they took as they pledged their trust to him in marriage and in faithfulness. And they must be his warrior bride to fight for him. Well, Israel then is starting over. And they get their new chance here and they are not going to blow it this time. There are no more sins and no more rebellions. And in our final lecture, we will look at their march toward Canaan. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. 
That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Thank you.